0: This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm really pleased to have Ulrika Modir, who is the Assistant Administrator and Director of the Bureau of External Relations and Advocacy at UNDP. She had a past life as the Minister for International Development, the State Secretary, which is basically the top political job in Sweden, development cooperation and climate. Ulrika, thanks for being on. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to do it. Really pleased to meet you. So... Can you tell me about we're, – we're having this conversation in the context of, a, of, a, of an event we're doing, a Chevron forum we're doing here at CSIS on goal number 17. I'm Catholic. I have a hard time keeping the Ten Commandments straight. I have a very hard time keeping 17 goals straight and the 169 sub-indicators. It's a lot. So the goal 17, I think, is we need to have a multi-stakeholder partnership to solve all the big problems that we've identified in Goals 1 through 16, right? Isn't that basically what Goal 17 is?
1: It is, and I think that we need to go back to 2015 when the world leaders took a very important decision and finally I would say they got it right because it was actually a combination and that's easier to remember to see the three things needs to be combined for us to have a sustainable future for our common generations, our children and grandchildren. That is that we will not have economic sustainable development if we don't take into consideration social sustainability And we need to respect the borders of our planet. So social, economic, environmental sustainability need to come together. That was the decision about the Sustainable Development Goals.
0: How long were you state secretary in Sweden, and and what did you
1: do in that life? And then I want you to tell me about what you're doing at UNDP. So I was state secretary for the government for four years. That was one period. And I was responsible for Sweden's International Development Corporation. And Sweden, being a quite small country, has quite a big footprint, actually, globally, because it has engaged in international development corporations throughout decades and has invested a lot. It has a 1% G&E goal.
0: Uh, So spending 1% of its gross national income on foreign aid. Yeah. And what's the dollar amount? What's that in American dollars? Is that like a billion dollars?
1: 4.5, sorry. 4.5 billion
0: (laughs) dollars. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We spend about 35, so that's a pretty big, that's yeah. a big number. Yeah. I cannot imagine an American politician other than, I don't know, maybe Bernie Sanders putting forward a 1% goal. I mean, I just think, you know, I don't know what we do. I mean, we consider ourselves the most generous country on a dollar basis, I know, from a GNI basis. Now, we do spend a lot of attention here in the United States on NATO, on 2% is a big number for us. So we're less interested in 0.7 and more interested in the 2% number here these days in Washington. Sweden's not a member of NATO, right? No. Okay. But we've had this conversation with the Norwegians. The Danes, I think, do 2%. And I can't remember if the Norwegians do. They do 07 and they do 2%. Yeah. What percentage does Sweden spend on its defense?
1: It's about the same as International Development cooperation, okay. And I think nowadays it's important to see, and I know that you've had this discussion here in the U.S. as well, that, I mean, in order to prevent conflict, we need to invest in development.
0: I agree with that. One of the things we've been working on here at CSIS is the issue of forced migration. And the magic number I come up with, we spent a year working on this. We did a big bipartisan task force. And my big takeaway, and the Center for Global Development did some interesting work on this, that the magic number is 8,000. When you have a country hits $8,000 per capita, most economic migrants stop moving. Now, a lot of the forced migration crisis isn't about economics. It's about conflict, fragile states, minorities not feeling like they're being protected, or young people being co-opted into gangs, or violent extremism of various forms. So how did the forced migration crisis come across your radar screen in Sweden when you were cooperation minister?
1: So in 2015, uh, there were a lot of refugees from the Syria crisis, but also from other parts of the world coming towards Europe. And Sweden and Germany were the two countries in Europe actually taking on most responsibility for that situation. So we had a lot of asylum seekers coming to Sweden in 2015. How many did Sweden take? Oh, I can't remember the exact 30, 000, figure. now. Yeah, so we had, at, at one point, I mean, we had ten thousands of, of asylum seekers every week. Uh, so the legislation was actually changed in 2015, and Sweden engaged a lot at that time to see to that the European Union could take a common decision on how to have common responsibility.
0: And that didn't happen?
1: It didn't. Okay. So far. So far. Because it needs to happen. I think uh, the EU needs to find its way with regard to migration.
0: So... What happened after 2015? Did you did you guys get voted out of office because of this issue? This the,
1: no, this the reason no, no. So I mean, I stayed in government until last year, and and it, there were changes in legislation and and intensified discussions within the EU, as you say, so far not resulting, but. Uh, Europe needs to find uh, its way to, rel- to relate to, to migration and also to the refugee crisis we have in the world, taking on also its share of responsibility. Uh, we would know that most refugees are actually in Africa, in, yeah, in, in the, the least developed south. countries. Yeah.
0: So, let me just push just a little bit further on the Sweden issue. Didn't I can't remember if Denmark's had a change in government, Norway's had a change in government. Have yeah. you guys had a change in government since 2015? Not, no,
1: well, not during that period, but there were a lot of discussions, of course, and. As we have also a bipartisan agreement on the 1% Gini goal and the importance of investment in international development cooperation, there was also an agreement on migration between the parties and the discussion in parliament. Is the
0: Green Party still in the coalition government? Yeah, it is. I've made 90 presentations based on We went to 10 countries. We interviewed 450 people. I had like several deep thoughts about forced migration. One was this, we got to move countries as fast as possible to $8,000 per capita that that the big show is going to be Africa because of the doubling of the population. Yes, you're right. Most most forced migrants, refugees, IDPs, asylum seekers, are ending up in poor countries.
1: We need to get back to an understanding of the migration and development because there's a very negative discussion. I mean, of course, migration has its problem, especially for those people who are forced to migrate. Yeah. And we know the circumstances they have along the way. I mean, the difficulties, what they suffer, and we also know that uh, welfare societies in Europe and also in the U.S. there are discussions and and uh, hesitance, uh, I, not I think it's to, to t- say t- the least, to, to take
0: on this. I, I, would argue, that, I would argue. I would yeah. argue, Orica, that the O.E.C. countries the borders are hardening that i think yeah, that yeah. is politically yeah, yeah. more unrealistic yeah. I, I think it's going to be very difficult to change that anytime yeah. in the next couple of decades i think there is political will for increased oda we've spent 12 billion dollars a year on global aids we've had political will money diplomacy and research on global aids for 15 years and we are now bending the curve we even solved global aids but we're bending the curve on global aids if we were having this conversation 20 years ago and we talked about colombia and you know latin america well I just said, okay, it's a failed state. The DIA in the United States had an analysis that said the FARC might take over and win militarily. And Colombia, terif- terrible thing. The global community, Sweden, the European Union, the United States, the IDB, the World Bank came together and we made a commitment with the government of Colombia to de- trade, development, security, diplomacy to manage the challenges of Colombia. So Colombia is not a failed state today. It's absorbed a million refugees plus in Venezuela. They may be a part of the solution to solving Venezuela in a variety of ways. I won't get into here. But I would just say that they're a great force of good in the world. They're not a failed state. So my argument on the forced migration thing is that I think we need some sort of global fund for forced migration. We need some sort of 25-year commitment to manage the drivers of why people leave. We want people to stay where they are and, and prosper because I think it's going to get harder and harder. I think the arguments about solidarity still still have some merit, but I think they have less and less, if you look at all over Europe, if you look in the United States, I think elsewhere, I think it's getting harder and harder to take on more people. I, I lament it, but I think it's a reality.
1: Okay. So I, I think that this is, of course, a tendency that we see, and you're right. At the same time, I think we need to see that also we need migration. I mean, it's, it's not, we need to see also that there are positive sides to migration and that uh, Europe, but also perhaps the US, will need also people to develop our countries. I think that's important. Yes,
0: I agree. So if you're a refugee, if you come through the refugee door, those folks are happy to work. They're grateful for the jobs. They're wonderful. They're often really capable. The issue of refugees and how we manage, sort of managed migration, just as I was talking about managing sort of disease or managing a challenge like a conflict in Colombia, I think we're going to have people move all the time, and people have been moving since since we were in, you know, since the dawn of of humankind. But I think... We're going to have to find ways to manage it in a variety of ways,
1: right? No, and you're true. And this is also why the UN has engaged in a series of, of really important meetings, both on refugees and on migrants. And there was a compact on migration last year that I think is building on, on research and, and facts, which is very important for the discussion and debate. And uh, where we try also to see if we can facilitate uh, different experience to be shared uh, between countries and, and regions uh, in order to see how to deal with a world where we have much more uh, forced migration Uh, but where there is also actually an interest for the global north to see how to see to that we can still have really competent people coming to our countries through migration, uh, but also how we can take on responsibility, as you say, for the the refugee crisis of the world.
0: No, I think that's right. And I thought the two two compacts, one has to think about them, I think, in the way that we had Rio 1992 on the environment side and there's been sort of a series of it has sort of kind of grown in momentum and sort of importance. And so I think the migration and refugee compacts, I think, are sort of part of a longer journey that we have as a global community to figure how we're going to figure this out. I think sooner or later, we're going to have to put more money into the drivers of forced migration. I think there's yeah. going to be political will in yeah. Europe. Yeah. I think there's going to be political will in the United States. I think for countries that are free riders on this. So there's a lot of countries in wealthy countries in Asia that don't take people or have a very hard time taking people. There are a number of countries in the Middle East that are, don't take a lot of people and don't write big enough checks, if you ask me. I also think here in Washington, one of the arguments is we can't, I think doing nothing is not an answer because I think um, because of demography, I think this is going to get a lot bigger. And I think it's absorbing a much larger part of the ODA pie. We've done some work with development initiatives, which is a very respected development kind of bean counter, slice and dice data group. It's a great organization in the UK. I mean, it's really, fat. they do fabulous, fabulous work. And so we sliced and diced ODA numbers from the DAC, which is, you know, yeah. sort of the Major League Baseball yeah, Commission yeah. of foreign yeah, aid. Yeah. And if you look at it on a year yeah. by year basis, it's approaching how much we spend globally yeah. on global health. Yeah. And that's just playing defense. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to you know, we're going have to no, find five or 10 billion a year yeah. over and above what we're spending on ODA just to deal with the forced migration issues yeah. here yeah. in the U.S., When 45,000 kids showed up on our border from Central America, a Republican Congress and a Democratic President agreed to spend a billion dollars a year more. When these sorts of things happen, there's I think there's a willingness to open wallets as we close borders. And I'm not necessarily I don't agree with it. We need to open wallets and we need to open options. Okay, that's my thought.
1: S- yeah, so we need to deal with the situation, as you say, and we need to do it on a long-term basis. Yes. Uh, so it's this is not going to be a quick fix. I think we need major investment in development cooperation and long-term development corporations. Uh, I mean, recently we see also a lot of uh, humanitarian crisis and we need humanitarian aid, but we also need to see to that we work on prevention. I agree with that. And besides, perhaps, I wanted to say also what you mentioned with regard to economic development, what we see within UNP, the United Nations Development Program, is the importance of of the work we do on governance, on rule of law, and different areas such as gender equality, where people, actually the young generation, they want to to live in societies as we all will, where they are guided by rule of law and and working they and functioning phones, democracy. They all have Facebook. Yeah. They know yeah. what the world is yeah. like.
0: Yeah. I think you all do fabulous work. I think the UN is not well understood in the United States. I think it's. It's a form of collective action. It's got an important brand. I mean, there's, there's certain pain points that the United States has around the United Nations, but it's sort of 5% of what the UN does, or 3% of what the UN does, and the other 97% is either unobjectionable or really good. And if we didn't have it, we'd have to invent it. So I think that what the United Nations does is very important. I also think we underestimate here in Washington the value of the imprimatur, the value of the brand. Mm-hmm so if the un says something it had has a lot of power and a lot of authority yeah. in many Develop countries other than the United States. It's yeah. got a lot of authority. Yeah. So we don't fully appreciate that here here in Washington or in the United States, but I know that to be the case. Yeah.
1: But still, I mean, the U.S. has invested a lot and engaged a We're lot. the largest
0: donor to the United Nations, I think. You on are one basis. of the
1: biggest donors also for the United Nations Development Program, and that also gives the U.S., of course, big importance when the normative work is going to be developed, the priorities that we set for the United Nations Development Program. The U.S., for instance, constantly pushing for uh, good governance as one main area of the work of UNDP, but also uh, finding new ways of, uh, as we're going to speak about here today in in uh, the meeting, yes. uh, how to bring the private sector, how to work on new and innovative ways of really uh, working towards the SDGs.
0: O- Orica, I've been very struck by a couple of things about the United Nations. One is that when I started, I joined the Bush administration in 2002, and just, the the global conversation in international development at that time was – I was at USAID, and then I was at the World Bank Group for a while, and I've been here for eight and a half years – was that multi-stakeholder partnerships wasn't a thing, to use sort of the American recent more idiom. there's it was There was sort of version 1.0 or yeah. version 2.0. Yeah. I think we're sort of in version 4.0. What I was struck with yeah. – I hosted a, a panel at SoCap, which is sort of is a group out in in San Francisco, which is a very interesting convening every year on social capital. It was all your UN colleagues from the field, from different agencies. Most are under the age of fifty, and there was sort of a generational mind shift. It was shocking to me. They were all talking about partnerships. They were all talking about how working with the private sector at least four of them from four different agencies is very, very interesting and a different experience than when I was, I think the global conversation about development has changed in the last 20 years. I think the fact that the UN, that there's so ma- there's been a mindset shift in the UN system, yeah. I think it's been good. I mean, the MDGs also had, they added, they had six goals and they kind of added a seventh or they had a seven and they added an eighth, I can't remember. You know, from the two thousand it was a very it was a very important innovation and in development, have the millennium development goals. There were some complaints about it, and so the attempt was to try and open up the conversation. That's why we have 17 goals and 169 indicators, which I think is too many, but it means everybody likes them and they own them. But one of the things I like about the SDGs is that there's a focus on governance. We're talking about good governance. There's a there's a term accountable governance, I yeah. think, in the language yeah. that's sort of UN speak in my mind for a non-corrupt. Yeah don't steal, probably imply something about democracy. Transparency,
1: prob- right, probably accountability. Put your fin- probably put, yeah. you,
0: put your finger on the scale towards democracy mm. or democratic mm. governance. And that's kind of you, that's how I read it, mm. or that's how I want to read it. Mm. So I think you're right. I mean, I think if I think about development, we need a functioning, formal private sector, and we need a functioning, effective state. Yeah, We need good governance for yeah, that and the yeah. sorts of things you are talking about. But of
1: course, about. and it all comes together. I mean, the work that UNDP does over decades now to strengthen institutions, to work on good governance, on transparency and accountability, uh, to combat corruption. That's actually de-risking also the market for those who want to invest in line with the sustainable development goals in least developed countries, but also in middle-income countries. So we really also try to to make the way for investors that want to invest in a world that needs to be developed. I was
0: shocked. I was involved with something... um Growing inclusive markets, which I'm dating myself, Mm -hmm. but I helped fund an initiative that I think Bruce Jenks, who may have had your job, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. in another life, uh, (laughs) and it was sort of some pool of money, and it was the UNDP looking at these issues of how to enable private enterprise, supporting pilots, and I thought it was a really interesting initiative. So I think there's been a series of things that the UN does around this, but I think it's been important to have this embedded in the SDGs, this issue of partnerships, because my sense is, Olvericka, is that there's government, civil society, companies, philanthropy, other forces in the world aren't no, there's no one single force that can solve big challenges, whether it's forced migration. I don't think the UN and the World Bank and AID and uh, Swedish CETA, ODA can't solve the global forced migration crisis. No.
1: Right? So oh, no, no, no stakeholder no. alone can no. solve
0: a big, complicated problem like we we're talking about earlier about the forced migration crisis. There's actually a big role for the private sector that we haven't talked about in this conversation. But one of the things, I think there's an enormous opportunity and enormous role for private enterprise in solving the global forced migration crisis or, or managing it. Maybe we're not going to solve it, but managing it. There's an important role for governments. So it's bringing all these together and I think one of the things that makes you all special that we don't appreciate in the U.S. is that you have unique relationships with developing country governments. They trust you. Yeah. They work with you, right? Yeah. Isn't that yeah. part of what makes that's you guys true. special? Yeah,
1: that's true. That's one of the reasons why I think the UN has a very important role. The other reason is what you pointed at, and that is the normative work of the UN—that we actually stand by the values of human rights. We have invested a lot in the understanding of the pathways towards peace and how we can actually develop the least developed countries. So there's a lot of knowledge uh, within the UN system. But more than that, I think that we also need to see that there's actually also a way to work in a cost-efficient way. Uh, One of the big problems of International Development Corporation is that there are so many actors there with their own brands and flags and so on. We love our flags in the U.S. We love putting our flag on stuff. (laughs) Yeah, you can do that still as as part of the international community. But we know that if we're going to work in a cost-efficient way, we need to align locally and we need to coordinate in a good way. And the U.N. is a very good platform for coordination. So, Ulrika, one last and question. And the U.S. has actually engaged lots in the agenda of aid and development effectiveness. I'm, I'm very mistaken. happy to hear yeah. that.
0: I'm very happy to hear that. I think, I think the U.N. is an important institution. I think UNDP has a very important role. I think you're very well ably led. Akim Steiner, mm-hmm. he's very smart. He used to run UNEP before. I think yeah. he was IUCN. Yeah. I think he's a very able leader. I've been very impressed when we hosted him here. You know, I think you've been blessed with a number of strong leaders, and they're very lucky to have you. As well, how, t- tell me one last thing about, one of the things I've been struck with is some of the knowledge products that the, you, in addition to the, the project work, and in addition to the convening power, and the, in addition to the normative values, but oftentimes you've done some really interesting research. So I think of the Arab Human Development Report, yep. the first one in particular in 2002, that changed the world. Yep. The human development reports that you put out, those have changed the world. Yep the Global Pulse, which is sort of leveraging technology, that has that some fascinating insights. So for example, Global Pulse, which may or may not be housed at UNDP, but I know oh, the other two are, somebody told me the woman who is from Mexico who ran that research center in Chile, the UN Research Center in Chile, I'm forgetting what it's called, you know, it's not, flax, it's not Flaxo, but there's yeah. a UN agent, yeah. there's sort of a UN yeah. research institution in Chile. She said they looked at Latin American, Tweets. This was probably in 2015. And they said, okay, what are the three most common words that are coming out of Latin America and Spanish? And the words were inequality, mm-hmm. corruption,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and education. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right?
0: And so there's all sorts of things like that that you all yeah. are doing yeah. all the time. Yeah.
1: And actually, since you mentioned the Human Development Report, that has been a very important, very important. piece of work. Uh, this year, uh, the topic is going to be inequality. Really? Yeah.
0: So I think one of the challenges both here in the U.S. Now, we're kind of funny. It depends on who you talk to. We're kind of funny about that term. But the American Enterprise Institute, which is an important center-right think tank here. Arthur Brooks, I think, is one of the great minds of his generation, has just stepped stepping down. Their new head, their new CEO of AEI, which is, a, I think, a great and important think tank here in the United States and in the world, has just named their new CEO. And the CEO worked for a Republican, kind of an independent Republican governor Bloomberg, and he also, I believe, worked for the governor, Republican governor of New York, Pataki, on social welfare issues and poverty. Because I think the board of AEI and their leadership realized there's this enormous challenge in the United States, but I think there's also a global challenge. I think there's going to be a global challenge in development about this, that you can't have a society where – there's 1% gets gets all the money. We're going to have a revolution if we're not careful.
1: Yeah, so I think that this is also worth mentioning when we talk about sustainable development goals. The big difference as compared also to the millennium development goals is that they actually are about all countries, all societies, and that the roadmap on both economic, social, and environmental sustainability should guide not only the developing countries, but actually the U.S. and Sweden as well.
0: Now, Ulrika, I know that's true, Mm. but I think there's probably 20 members of Congress that know what the SDGs are. They're all Democrats. Mm. There's like Mm. the mayor of Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the mayor of Berkeley know what it is and take them kind of seriously. But I cannot imagine. And New York as well, because New York actually, they work work with the SDGs as a roadmap. I'm being a little flippant and a little unfair. It's proto-soft law. It's Mm -hmm. kind of proto-soft law, as the SDGs feel like proto-soft law. This is great. Thanks for the time. Thanks for coming down from New York.
1: Thank you so much.